welcome back. You're here for another episode of Mentally Unscripted. Uh, as always, I am Paul, and I'm joined here uh, with my co-host, Scott. And today, we are going to be talking about uh, civil discourse. <laughs> in the, in the post-era of Trump, maybe, maybe in, in, unless, unless Trump comes back, uh, but in the you know, 2020 era in which everything is so volatile, uh, everyone feels very much they have to choose a side or they're on a side and they have to defend it. And this conversation, uh, at least from my perspective, something that's obviously been, I think, around anybody who's going to be a listener of this podcast, but it, it kind of came to a point listening to Sam Harris, um, I guess, monologue that he shared, uh, I want to say within the last week, in which he um, talked about his communication with some of the other people of what I guess we're calling the dark, the dark web, um, the uh, and, and these would include you know you have Sam Harris and you have other people like Eric Weinstein, Joe Rogan, um, Ruben, uh, and Ben Shapiro. That you know several years ago they they were talking about topics that they disagreed with openly, and uh, with Trump uh, they've they've fallen on on different different sides of the conversation. And in this particular monologue. Uh, Sam said, listen, I'm no longer part of this club because they're promoting conspiracy theories about the election. And uh, I, I had some thoughts about sort of where our, our discourse goes when someone like that is able to say, I'm, I'm no longer going to engage in these types of conversations because I don't want to be associated with those ideas. And it, it opens up a broader conversation about how do we continue to uh, communicate in a highly divisive environment. And so, Scott, I, I, I'll, I'll just start with the opening question. Um, what are your sort of initial thoughts on discourse and, and you know, your thoughts after listening to that Sam Harris recording? Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, one of my initial thoughts is that, it, it, I mean, it certainly seems that we are moving into a direction where um, the Overton window um, has become very narrow and there's a lot of people who um, who who want to put the limits on that window based off, like you mentioned, kind of like the tribe you're in, the team you're on. Um, so much so that it, it's gotten to the point where we, we can't even disagree. Or not only can we not disagree, we can't even ask the questions. Um, if we do ask the questions rather than getting, like you mentioned, to civil discourse, we just get ad hominem attacks in response. Um, if you if you ask the question, you just get labeled as a conspiracy theorist. You get labeled as a white nationalist. You get labeled as a uh, a deplorable. Um, and then and then that seems to just be all the reasoning we need, right? I'm not going to talk to you because you are X. And we need to move beyond that, right? We need to allow people to ask the questions and we need to be able to enter into conversations about them. Um, and you can, like, like you mentioned, you can agree to disagree, right? But that, but the conversation is still beneficial. Um, yeah. and, and people can certainly get along just fine when they don't agree. Um, you know, just, you know, I'm a huge college football fan. Um, and, and I'm a Florida state alumni, that doesn't mean that I'm because I disagree with my friends who are Gator alumni or our tribal, right? That doesn't mean that we're not going to get along, right? We might argue <laughs> a little bit about football, right? But yeah. in the greater scheme of things, right? It doesn't make sense that we would just, 
you know, cut each other out of our lives and not talk to them anymore over something like this. And, you know, you could argue like what Sam Harris is talking about with, um, with Donald Trump, right? That the stakes are much greater, but mm-hmm. still, you know, because the stakes are greater, right? There's even greater reason for us to talk and have discourse. So yeah, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I, I've been thinking so much about it, and maybe the reason that the Ruben, uh, sorry, the the Sam Harris uh, monologue was uh, something I really noodled on was I have a friend, and I've mentioned him before on on the podcast, who um, when I heard Harris speak, I I felt like I was listening to him speak as well, and sort of this uh, complete distrust of the president, uh, and I haven't even disagreed necessarily with the assessment, you know, is, uh, do I know if, if this person in this case, Trump is, is a sociopath or some other type of, uh, person that has no care for others and therefore will make decisions that only benefit themselves. I haven't even necessarily pushed back on that because I don't know. I, I really don't know what's in the, what's in the head of, of Trump, just like I don't know what's in the head of, of others. And so then they say, well, if you don't know that, look at the actions and look, and they, they, they list out a series of actions. Uh, and the great one would be looking at separating children uh, from their parents at the border, uh, the inhumane treatment of that. And I go, okay, I mean, it's interesting that we bring up that particular point as, as a reference, because it's a debatable point, not because I think that we should necessarily be separating children from their parents. I, I don't. I'm a, I'm a traditionalist in that sense. Parent, the family should stay together. But from what I've read, there's other contexts there which may suggest that the kids aren't actually part of the family unit, that kids are being brought over by coyotes who... As we do know, that came out. I was on trending, uh, trending a couple of weeks ago. Some people didn't even really seem to understand what a coyote was—a a, a uh, smuggler of, of people—and oftentimes they're associated with uh, human trafficking. So the the context starts to when I hear someone look at that and say, "Well, you don't understand," and look at his behavior, he clearly wants to separate families. Well, yeah, but the context doesn't actually suggest that. So do I really understand that or not? And then. To come back to the point we're starting specifically to, uh, to sort of Sam's video, he just has you know sort of lesson after lesson, and it's all implied that nothing that Trump would do would be outside of a self selfish motive, and so any any policy standards, any actions taken by Trump in the last four years that could be good are assumed to be bad. Uh, because he was doing it out of selfish motive. And I, I, I just, it is, it is perplexing to me because it's, it's hard to imagine. And I, I think you and I have talked about this either in a podcast or offline that a hundred percent of activity over the last four years has been entirely bad. And there's no policies that we'd want to, we'd want to continue. And, you know, I, you know, if I go back to the previous administrations and ones before that, it, is that really the case? And I, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, so it, it places this in this really difficult position of an argument saying, listen, I will take someone who 
has a moral stance, even though their policies may be uh, not aligned with what I think is right for the country, um, over someone who has who I think is amoral and whose policies uh, um, I, maybe I, I agree with even more, uh, but I don't like the way he's doing it, and so it's it makes. It makes for a very difficult kind of conversation. How do you how do you square that? Is is kind of what goes on in my head. So, in your mind, with when you're talking to people, do you do you feel like that's the dichotomy? People basically saying, "Listen, I I feel like I, I will take an amor someone who who appears to be more moral in the traditional sense, even if I dislike their policies, versus someone who I I clearly dislike whose policies I like." Um, yeah, I do get that sense. Um. And, you know, one thing that I, I think, you know, we have to keep in mind is, um, we, we can't just assume someone's intent, right? We can't assume that because someone supports one side that they are something bad, right? We can't assume that, um, a Trump supporter is deranged, a deplorable, a, a white nationalist, um, or just, you know, supports con men and amoral people. Um, just because they 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 support the guy or they support his particular uh, policies, um, and w- we seem to put a lot of we seem to put a lot of effort into just assuming intent and then using rationality to try to justify our assumption. Um, yes, I, you know one thing I'm thinking of is you know Trump's you know here we're you know about mid November just before Thanksgiving Trump's talking about getting the troops out of Afghanistan and you're hearing from people who, you know, are kind of principled people who, who see the benefit in ending this war, but they're criticizing him because he's not doing it the right way. Right. He's, I, I forget who it was, but you know, I heard someone say that, you know, if, if Trump's plan, if he continues with his plan, the troops are going to come home, but they're all going to come home in body bags. But then they offered no explanation as to why that's going to happen. And, and, and to me, like, that's, that's just a breakdown of reason, right? Like there's this sort of emotional, visceral reaction to, I have to be against what Trump says or against what he does. And then I have to go back and try to try to justify it. I have to figure out how to make that sound legitimate. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that's one reason that's one area where we're breaking down is that people are they're they're coming to these conclusions but then they're not really thinking them through um to make sure that they're um catching all the biases all the fallacies in their their reasoning well Um, and and, you know something that that and i'm I'm curious on your thoughts here something that really blows me away is everyone will talk about reading people's work like thinking fast and slow by kenneman or reading um Jonathan Haidt's work in the, in the moral landscape, where they clearly lay out a very persuasive argument that everybody is biased, everyone is is weighing these decisions uh, against their value system, and yet when you hear people like a Sam Harris speak, there is almost and and if he's in conversation i've listened to to interviews uh with jonathan Hyde, and they were they were great great conversations and and it's it's as if they they accept their work over in uh, when they're not you know frustrated with trump or perhaps the republicans and and 
I wouldn't say Trump or Republicans if it didn't feel as though it was mostly those characters. Um, you know, it's just not as if Sam Harris, may, he also goes after um, uh, Greenwald, uh, the, the the reporter, and I think he's he obviously he's had conversations with um, people at Fox, so sort of the, the super woke left, if you will, But which I, I wouldn't even necessarily consider all them anymore. But to come back to it, do you find that those people that cite that work somehow seem to ignore it when they're having these conversations? Oh, definitely. Um, and I, th- I think it's one of those things again, where, you know, they, you know, they, they engage in the first part of the process, right? They, they have that emotional reaction, but then they ignore the second part of the process is where they take reason and kind of apply it to their reaction. They understand mm-hmm. how their emotions are driving that reaction. Um, I know we've, we've talked before offline about kind of this idea of inertia, right? Um, it, you know, it it takes energy to kind of move away from, it takes energy to go from at rest to movement. And I, I kind of think of, is of, um, reasoning and logic and the, and our our opinions, our worldview is being subject to inertia, right? You have to really, Mm. you, you have to put energy into changing your mind or changing your outlook. And I think a lot of people, they just don't want to put the energy into it. Um, so even in the face of facts that would contradict their positions, they, 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 like, they just, they're just dug in. They don't want to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and that leads to a lot of assumptions um, that, and that leads to, um, again, to, you know, to go back to intent, it, it leads us to draw quick conclusions about people uh, without, without really stopping to say, well, what, what, what is, what's going on here? Why did this, why does this person think the way they're thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah. I, I, to me, that's a very accurate description of what we're seeing in mass. And there's this tension that occurs when you speak to someone, your model in your head is you have this friend, or you have this colleague who maybe has different of opinion, but in your head, well, if they just saw the light, Kind of to use almost a spiritual analogy, if they just saw the light, they would they would start seeing things my way, which is black and white thinking. In that, my I clearly have arrived at the right conclusion, and therefore, it's it's just a matter of time for someone else who's uh, intelligent to to reach the same conclusion if they saw the same facts. And then when that tension, the tension heats up when they see the same facts and they draw different conclusions. So your model was, was, was broken, right? Because you expected the outcome that they would now say, oh, yeah, in the case of Sam, you're right, Sam. What you've been saying for years is, is right. This person is demented. We should never have endorsed them. Um, then uh, when that doesn't happen, uh, that tension is created. And I think that's where the emotional response may start to kick in, right? Because... Uh, mm-hmm. The tension is confusion. It's anger. It's uh, question. It's start, now it's starting to have self doubt. If if my model predicted X and what I'm seeing is is A, uh, how how many other models do I have that that are inaccurate? <laughs> uh, and so, I know it's a very kind of high level, or or what you want to say. Just it, it doesn't really relate, you know, directly to the core of the human uh, emotion um, part of it. Uh, but it, it, it does, that's sort of what I'm seeing a lot. And, you know, I'll, I'll use a personal example that I, I'm, I'm finding I'm trying to fight what I would consider the good fight. 
And in mind, that good fight is is not assuming motives or intent. So in my family, uh, there was an email distributed uh, to family members saying, well, how could you vote on the left? How can you endorse these policies, these socialist policies? And I responded back to that. I, you and I know I, I don't endorse many of these policies. I, I don't think that they're functional or, 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 or even good. But I said, I, 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 how can you assume that's what they're endorsing? If they, if they feel like the greatest existential risk is someone who is like Trump, a chaotic communicator, someone who in their minds has endorsed uh, the fringes with uh, race baiting, if that's the way they see it and that's their model, they don't feel like they're endorsing socialism. They feel like they're endorsing a moderate candidate who is going to be pushing back against these worse impulses and creating stability. Now, do I, do I think that's accurate? I don't. But I, what I'm trying to explain is I, I'm trying to think in their minds how they're arriving at their conclusions and, and assuming, um, assuming the best, right? Assuming good faith, assuming that they don't want destruction. They don't want enslavement. They're, they're not, the outcomes that, that we share are, are very similar, right? We want, we want growth. We want prosperity. And that, that, you know, I did that in my own family, pushing back against, you know, someone whose views maybe are a little bit more similar to mine um, in terms of how we should be, proceed. But it's hard. It's hard when everyone wants to go to that tribal corner. Everyone wants to assume bad intent. You, you feel you're, you're exhausted sometimes. And I, I don't know if you've had experiences like that. Oh, definitely. Um, it's it's gotten to the point where, you know, sometimes I don't even engage in conversations that are going on around me. Um, like if I'm out socializing just because, you know, I don't want to get into the sort of feeling like I'm beating my head against the wall. Um, because people just aren't, you know, they're not listening to my reason and logic. Um, and so, you know, I find it, it's kind of interesting to me. I kind of like, I used to, and probably still do fall into this trap where I'm like, okay, you know, here's, here's, here's the facts. Here's what's going on. Right. Any, you know, any thinking person would just look at that and see that I'm right and, and should yeah. just change their minds. Um, but I try not to do that. Right. I try to be conscious of that because we're all different, right? We all have different backgrounds. We all have different upbringings. Uh, you know, we all have different outlooks on life. We have different priorities. Um, so it perfect, it stands to reason perfectly that, you know, Paul, you and I, we can look at the exact same set of facts and reach a very different conclusion. Um, and, and we need to get to the point where we can accept that to where that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you mentioned kind of this, kind of this model, you were talking about what do you do when your model breaks down? Like, you know, my model says these facts will lead you to conclusion, whatever, you know, facts X will lead to conclusion Y. Well, what happens when facts X lead to conclusion Z? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think that causes some cognitive dissonance for people because they just can't, <laughs> you know, they just can't, what do you mean? Not Y and Z, you know? Um, so one thing to keep in mind, right, is there's this, this mental model that I really like called the map. The map is not the territory, right? It's the idea yeah. that your model is just a model of the world, but mm -hmm. you have to be willing to accept that, right? That model has got assumptions built into it and that model has got um, your biases built into it. 
So, yeah. you know, so when you lay out facts X and someone reaches conclusion Z, you know, we, we can't just respond with, well, you're just a conspiracy theorist. You're just a, you know, a whatever, right? You, you kind of have to stay, take a step back and like you mentioned, right? Try to put yourself in the head of the other person or, you know, God forbid, ask questions, right? <laughs> oh, you know, that's, that's, that's interesting that you came to that conclusion. I don't, I don't see how you could have gotten there. Can you help explain it to me? You know, let's talk through this. And yeah. at the end, if you're still convinced that Y is correct and that person's still convinced that Z is correct, then, you know, you shake hands, you pay your bar tab and you go your separate ways. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Um, you know, um, and, you know, the other thing to keep in mind, too, and something that's very helpful for me is I I was reading up about decision making a, a few years ago and, and the process that people follow to make decisions like who to vote for, it, it can be very different. You know, like some people, they can pick just one issue and they'll say, which candidate is better on this one issue that's really important to me? And they'll just go with that candidate. You know, all other issues are just kind of put on the back burner or just flat out ignored. You know, other people may look at it more from a, you know, who are all my friends voting for? I want to be part of the crowd. So that's going to be my decision making process. Right. So there's a lot of ways that we can make decisions that completely don't have anything to do with that one issue that's so important to you, right? So, you know, I'm just going to come out and say it. A lot of, just because people voted for Trump does not mean they are white nationalists, right? They, you can't assume that they're, they're casting the vote for that. It could be, there could be other reasons, maybe, um, you know, uh, someone has, you know, family in the military over in Afghanistan and they hear Trump talking about bringing the troops home. They really want their family members to come home. Right. So in their analysis, right, that that one issue far outweighs everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and so getting back again to intent, right, we can't just assume intent, right? We have to talk to people. We have to look at the evidence. We, we have to look at what they're saying, how they're acting, what they're doing, and that sort of thing. Yeah. No, I, and and it it brings me or makes me think about uh, I wrote uh, I read the book, not all of it, it kind of got into the to the advanced techniques, but a book by Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay, and I believe it's called How to Have Difficult Conversations. Yeah, yeah that's on and my reading list. It's it's a it's an interesting book. I mean, I I feel like. Uh, a huge chunk of it is just citations. I mean, they're, they're both in the, in academia, so they, they feel the need to tell you. And that's fine. That's, that's the world. Um, I, I'm happy that the world has people like them. But the, the, a couple things stand out if I think back to that book. Um, one of them is assuming good faith. So the idea, um, and, that the person that, that you're going to be engaging with wants to have an engaging conversation. Uh, and that, that implies, uh, so, so first is the, the first idea, like you need to choose good sparring partners. So if you think about a boxing ring, you're at a, you're at a, a, a club or they do boxing and they say, Hey, do you, do you want to spar with somebody? Are you getting in with somebody who wants to just take you out Mike Tyson style? Or are you with someone who wants to train? Right, you need someone who wants to actually engage with you on the topics, and uh, rather than just shoot you down or, or just 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 sharing. Um, 
uh, their their perspective just to just to uh, get it off their chest. They may just have an emotional release that they need to to release all of this this anger and frustration. Uh, then they they talk about the uh, so you see you have to have good faith to start it. Uh, asking questions is just the. I mean, it's there, there's no better way to understand where you actually disagree. So it's it's a, there, there's another subtle part of that uh, which I believe they call out. Just this idea of when you're asking the question, don't assume that you disagree more than you do. Uh, you, you're going to have an impulse in you when you hear something you you disagree with. It's it's natural, it's particularly if it's something you care about uh, for whatever reason. So, but but don't when someone tells you here, you know they put a they put a sentence together and they articulate. You have to realize most of us, and I, and I, I put myself squarely in this box struggle with articulating our ideas that they can be easily understood 100% of the time, particularly if they are complex thoughts and, and, and nuanced positions. You, and so if you, when you're communicating to someone and you say, I'm pro-abortion, let's just take that, you know, very controversial topic in our country. What does that actually mean? How do you unpack that? Do you put any limits on it? Do you have no limits on it? Um, are you, um, are you, um, do you want to ask people to have consent? Do you want no consent? Do you think the government should fund it? Should it be at the state level? Should it be at the federal level? Should there be no funding for it? Should it all be private citizen? Let's see, are Those you still are there? questions that you can ask to understand someone when they say, well, I'm pro-abortion, what that actually means. Scott, you're back? Okay, I'm back. Sorry about that. No, no, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, I assume you, you left the uh, the audio running the whole time? Um, I heard uh, most of what you said. Yeah, okay. I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, um, yeah, so my, my point is on, on, on any topic, there's a series of embedded assumptions that you may assume that you really don't know. You don't know that other person's thinking. And so it's uh, you, you need to force yourself to ask the questions to understand what they really think and why they think it. And, and also then realize, as you said, and, and the data the, seems to be very much this way, that we our, our intuitions guide our decisioning. And if we're lucky uh, and we force ourselves through routine and through, through practice to use our, our faculties for, for decision-making, uh, where we're, we're, we're forcing ourselves to be logical and asking better questions, we can, we can override some of those intuitions. But if you're asking someone on any topic, let's just say, like, as you use the example of, I want to I bring our troops home from Afghanistan because my son is, or my daughter um, are, are in the armed forces and I prefer to have them home safe. Uh, you, know, you, you can leave it at that or you can ask them, well, how do they balance that against our national security? Do they see the, do they see the battle and the war in Afghanistan as a national security? Do they, 
Uh, if they don't, why not? Uh, there, there's there's a, a many different ways you can go down that path. And so I, I just highlighted three of things of, I would say, even a hundred in that book where they talk about having good conversations. And my frustration that I come back to, which is, which is almost a, what you said, you end up not sharing your, your perspectives, is that I find when I tell people, hey, go check out this book because it's going to help you have better discussion. And I, I always recommend Heights, uh, Moral Landscape, and How to Have Difficult Conversations because in, those, in that mind, in my mind, those are unlocking. They're, they're taking the, that cobweb thinking in your head, which says, no, I, you know, I'm going to assume bad faith. I'm going to go in there and assume it's just about information. It's not about value structures. It, it, it disrupts it. But everyone I meet, they would prefer to live in their tribes. They would prefer to feel comforted by their tribe. They want to continue to uh, fight against the other side. And so it almost feels like an uphill battle. You're, you're trying to help people communicate and, 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 and even defending people whose policies you disagree with at the cost of having to deal with people that are, are just constantly wanting to beat you down. Um, and that's, that's frustrating. Uh, if, if I'm honest, uh, it, it takes a lot of mental and emotional capital to keep that going. But I, even though I know it's the right thing to do, um, because it, 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 I think it's the right thing to do because it aligns with the idea of we know we're biased people. We know that our intuitions can often be wrong and they can lead us in the wrong direction and that we have to force ourselves to be more rational. And this is part of that process, at least in my mind it is. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with everything you said. Um, I would, I would say one time, one thing though, is, I mean, I think sometimes it's good to just not engage. So like you said, it's exhausting, right? And sometimes we just need a break, right? Sometimes we need to just take a step back and say, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna focus on doing my thing and I'm not going to put all this energy, um, into, um, engaging in these conversations with these people. Um, especially if, like you said, like you mentioned, like good faith was kind of the, the first requirement, right? Even especially if you can kind of get the impression that they're not engaging in any conversations in good faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of, that reminds me of, of, of Hanlon's razor, right? You know, don't, don't assume malice when incompetence can explain their actions. Um, yes. You know, so you, you mentioned, uh, you know, kind of ask questions, kind of understand where people are coming from. Um, cause we seem to have gotten to this point now where we just assume that if you're not on my team, then you, you want evil things to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I can tell you as a, as a libertarian, you know, we want the, or I want, we want, you know, whatever. Um, I mean, we, we want the same things as the folks on the liberal side and on the, the conservative side want, right? We want a, we want a vibrant, thriving society where, mm-hmm. you know, everyone is successful, right? We just differ in our opinions on the best way to get there. And yet we seem, we lose sight of that a lot of time, right? We'll mm-hmm. seem to think, you know, I saw someone on Twitter ask the question kind of, you know, what do you think about libertarians? And a lot of the answers that came up are, you know, they're, they're not, they're immoral. Their policies are immoral. They're selfish. And, and that's, that's just not true. Like, you know, libertarians would love to have a society where, you know, sort of a, a rising tide raises all boats, so to speak. Um, 
So they, they want to be able to excel themselves, but at the same time, they want everyone else around them to be able to excel because right. that just makes society better as a whole. Um, so, you, I, you know, you got to kind of keep that in mind. I mean, um, we hear a lot about evil people, you know, especially the last four years, authoritarianism, Nazism, fascism, right? These are all words that have gotten thrown around a lot. But I think the reality is, is most people, right, they just they want to be left alone to pursue their own interests and the interests of their family and to um, live up to their possibility, right, to yeah. pursue their dreams. Um, and, and whether your philosophy is a libertarian philosophy or a more liberal philosophy for getting there, right, it, it doesn't change the fact that kind of everybody wants the same thing, right? There isn't a huge group in society, I don't believe, who wants, who wants to do evil, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, you mentioned like being comforted in, in your tribes. Um, you know, I think that's definitely true. And I think there's a basis for that. I mean, just from an evolutionary perspective, right. You, um, right. You trust the people in your tribe, but that tribe up the river, right. You kind of have to be a little leery of them because you don't know what their intentions are. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, so from just a survival aspect, right? There, you know, there's probably something built into our DNA that is going to make us be tribal. That's going to make us not trust those other people. Um, but you know, we're we're in a society now where you, you, we can overcome that. Right? Yeah. We're we're in a society now where um, where we we can kind of look at the people in that other tribe and we can understand them. Um, mm-hmm. you know, cause let's face it, right. Where they're, you know, the people on that other team in that other tribe, right. They're not going to come and attack us physically or anything, right. uh, they, you know, they may, they may attack us intellectually, but yeah. you know, that's, that's kind of how we grow. Um, and, and, you know, another thing too, is like, how do we define our tribe? Right. I mean, is our tribe based on the neighborhood we live in, the city we live in? Is it based on our political philosophy? Is it based on, um, you know, uh, the principles that we think make a person a high character person? Right. right. I mean, th- you know, these tribes, like, we're, we're part, we're members of, you know, how, I don't know how many different tribes. And in one instance, we may be completely against each other different tribes and in another instance we're completely in the same tribe so mm-hmm. what that tells me is like it's there's ways that we can find common ground right um, yeah. you know we just need to search those things out right we can't yeah. just define our lives in terms of liberal conservative and libertarian sure um, well and, yeah i was going to say i i remember listening to eric weinstein mention in, in a conversation, I, I don't remember with whom he was speaking, but he said, "I want to, I want to get away from just treating all tribalism as bad, and make sure that there's, there's, we talk about malformed tribalism." Mm-hmm. And that may not be the exact term he used, but it, I think, I think it, it kind of, it's, it's a similar point that you're making. Not tribalism in itself is a defense mechanism. It's, it's a, it's a preservation mechanism. So, it, and it's not always bad at all. Uh, we, what we should be doing is thinking about ways in which we can uh, mitigate its worst aspects and, and maximize its benefits. Um, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, nationalism, this idea of a national identity and thinking that you're part of a, of a state, a nation state, um, is, is mass tribalism. Um, 
And, and I'm sure at a technical level, you'd have political science saying, well, no, it's not because tribes only exist at certain sizes. But um, I, that's just the way in which I think about it. So I agree. Like you, it's it's um, you, you you need to be thinking about ways in which um, I mean, you because you, you said a lot there to unpack. I agree. You can't always engage with people. You need to be able to find common ground, and and you have to be seeking common ground. Realize that if you're frustrated, if you're in a position where you're angry about what you perceive the other tribe to be doing, you may not want to engage with those people. Um, from a civil discourse perspective, maybe, maybe honestly, I mean, that could, that could come down to saying, listen, I love you guys, but I'm not coming out for drinks tonight. Cause if you guys are going to be talking about this stuff, I, I really can't engage with it. And, and, and that, that's knowing their tolerances. Uh, you can be friends with people and not talk about certain topics. It's okay. That's the way it used to be. Uh, and, and I think it's it, in some ways we can return to that, that, that should be something that's very much a norm. Uh, rather than having to have a badge that says exactly how you feel about every single topic uh, with, again, those unpacked assumptions. But but actually, I, I guess, Scott, I want to ask you that. Do you have a model in your head of why we've gotten to a point today, social media, a fragmentation of traditional media, uh, different you know, different distribution of resources, et cetera, that, that explains why we are we, we struggle to communicate and then do you have thoughts how we would improve that model to, to get us back to um, an actual level of productivity? I don't want to talk about civility because civility sounds as if everyone gets along when we know that that's not necessarily true. But productive differences in conversations I think would be helpful. So uh, do you have thoughts on those two questions? Yeah, um, you know, I don't know if there's any one model. I think there's a lot of things that go go into why we're having this breakdown in communication. Um, you know, one that kind of popped into my head as you were talking is um, Charlie Munger had the um, say something syndrome um, hmm. where, you know, as people, we want to, even if we don't have anything valuable to add to a conversation, we feel the need to say something anyway. And, you know, I think that causes us to a lot of times, instead of taking a step back and listening, we're too concerned with putting our two cents in. And I think social media has just exacerbated that, right? With, you know, Mm. you know, how many times on Twitter do you see someone tweet something and then there's just, you know, just a list of inane responses to it, right? Either they're just saying you know, yeah, way to go, bro. Or, um, uh, you know, or they just restate their, the original tweet when maybe the people, they would be better off with just stopping and not worrying about what they're going to respond or how they're going to respond and just thinking about the tweet itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then saying, you know what, I, I don't really have anything to add to this conversation. So I'm just going to take this file it away and move on. Um, so, so and, if, if I can interject there, so you're, you're talking about, and you had mentioned this, I think, on a last last podcast about the the power of incentives, and so we've we've created these social networks that are incentivized to engage. I mean, that's that's they're giving you endorphins when you engage, uh, and and as the recipient of that engagement. So there's there's a um, part of it is, is is pulling back from that engagement and and being more contemplative as a as a way to sort of. Uh, break us out of this constant um, 
repeating syndrome. Okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, kind of use it as a way to learn and broaden your horizons and not as a, um, you know, a, 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 a needle full of dopamine that you can just kind of prick in yeah. your arm whenever you need right. to, to get that little rush. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, and I get it. I mean, I've fallen into that trap when, you mm-hmm. know, I'm, you know, I'm on Twitter and, you know, and I like it when people like my stuff and respond to it and that I get yeah. new followers. I mean, that sounds great. And, you know, and I, I, I sometimes chime in when maybe I don't need to, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, but I try to be conscious of it, right? You know, we're not perfect. You know, no. the, the, the challenge here isn't to be perfect, but it was to just, just to kind of come up with ways to kind of make our decision making and just kind of help us communicate better. Um, mm-hmm. And understanding that when we do make mistakes, you know, we, we can step back and understand what our mistakes were. Right. Um, and so one thing that kind of brings me to is I'm writing, I'm writing a blog post now that deals a lot with this illusion of control. Um, and again, it, that just, it's similar to the say something syndrome or like it's, you know, as people, humans, like we, we, we feel that act, we feel like action is better, mm. um, especially in Western cultures. So, um, if, if some issue comes up, right, we view the person who is decisive and the action taker as being the strong alpha person, whereas the other person who will kind of lay back and maybe kind of see how the situation unfolds before taking action as being more pensive, as being weaker, um, you know, kind Hmm. of like the more beta type person, um, and so we'll take the action even when our action makes the situation worse. Mm. Uh, you know, and we can see this a lot in the medical field. In fact, there's a, there's a term, um, iatrogenics, I think it is, um, that kind of refers to this idea where doctors will intervene rather than do nothing. And then sometimes that intervention actually makes the problem worse. So there's a, um, there's a, there's a bias towards doing something. Uh, yeah. and do, do you have a sense if it's a, a cultural norm or, some other type of driver? Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't looked into it enough to know how, how driven it is by culture. I do know like mm. in the U S here, right. We, you know, we fortune favors the bold, right. Is a, is a, <laughs> a phrase Absolutely. that we hear a lot. Yeah. Um, and e- even with COVID, right. There's a lot of people, you know, they want to, they want to blame Trump for not acting fast enough and decisively enough mm-hmm. when yeah. in the situation with COVID, you know, maybe it would have been better to just kind of sit back and, collect the data, prepare, but don't really implement any massive measures until we actually understand the virus better. Mm. Um, you know, and I don't know, like I'm, we're not, not going to hash that out on this podcast. I'm sure we'll sure, talk about it right. in a future one, but yep. you know, but that's the thought, um, you know, and sometimes, you know, like going back to the medical thing, you know, um, you know, a patient goes in with a sore throat and some other symptoms. Doctor doesn't really know what it is, but they prescribe antibiotics anyway, or they prescribe some intervention. When, mm. You know, maybe it would have just cleared up on its own, right? You know, so, right. so, but when we look at that, though, we'll, you know, we may kind of look at that doctor who doesn't do anything is, is like, well, this doctor doesn't know what he's doing. He, he couldn't offer any suggestion, right? He mm-hmm. had no theories, right? Um, right. So that, that incentivizes these people to take action, right? And that, yeah. and that gives us the illusion that we're actually doing something, right? The, the, the saying that, you know, action is not 
um, is not progress. Action is not results. Um, but we confuse the two. We sometimes mm-hmm. think that just taking action is, is the results. Um, right. So, um, you know, so there, there's that model, right? This, this idea that, you know, we can't, you know, when it comes to like, you know, Trump versus anti-Trump, right? We can't, we can't just lay back and let the Trump thing play out, mm-hmm. right? You know, because we, we, the stakes are too high or something. So we, we have to take action now, and right. even if that action results in a lot of divisiveness and a lot of hurt feelings and, and a total breakdown in communication between, you know, different people. So it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm trying to think of summarizing what you just said in terms of the, the model of, so our engagement models are broken and to some degree they may be heavily or lightly influenced by our, our digital models of how they engage, which is the, the dopamine tracks on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram with likes and comments. And then you have the other side of it, which is the control factor where people feel the need to engage. So you're, you're, your engagement model is broken because it's not incentivized properly for, for thoughtfulness. And then your default is movement rather than contemplation. So you've got two accelerants uh, for, for bad behavior or, or non-productive discourse, which is how I started the question. And right. that, that really does um, – it, do, it, 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 it really does put into sharp relief – some of the challenges you have that I think any of us can experience. Anybody who's listening to this, I don't know anybody I know that's not, that's going to tell me, yeah, no, everything's great. I love engaging with people. And, uh, you know, when, when, whenever we have a conversation, it's just like us talking about sports teams and it's lovely. It's like, right. no, it's not. No, don't, right. <laughs> don't, don't lie. And then I, I really find what you said, um, interesting about this default to action and, it's it, it, you just talk about shooting from the hip and, and just moving forward and you know thinking about um, I'm not sure it's the right model but loss aversion this idea that people regret more about what they lose so you know if um, the the idea that they, they don't like losing a hundred dollars versus gaining five hundred dollars right that risk right. reward right. and the way in which they process the 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 actual pain of the loss is greater than the money that they could have could have earned so. You, you wonder if a similar type of model plays in when they're thinking about the default to action or not rather not thinking, but actually defaulting to it, where at least they can always go back and say, well, I tried something. I tried something. I didn't just sit on my hands. At least we tried to do something. And that actually very much doesn't enrage me, but it does make me very passionate because you then you say, okay, if everything is about at least I took action, what about the principle of do no harm, which is also a medical principle, right? Right, right. Uh, yeah. And the idea that if we're going to move forward with anything from vaccination plans, from mass shutdowns, from uh, uh, from you know telling people to actually police their their local citizens and to snitch on them if they're finding and they're, I, today I, I saw a tweet where the the governor um, of Oregon was saying that if you see other homes in which they have more than six people in them, you should contact the police because they should be broken up and it's similar to a noise ordering, ordinance. And all of these types of effects, it's what, what when you say do no harm, are you, are you actually getting 
more harm out of the system because you're, you're bringing down COVID-related expansion or, or you know this, this sort of viral outbreak versus creating a norm where you're allowed to snitch on people. And that's a question that we should be asking. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, th- I think you characterized it great as kind of this idea of um, cost-benefit. Um, you know, if you, if you do nothing and the situation gets worse, that's going to look on you. You're going to be judged more harshly for that than if you tried to do something and you make the situation worse. Because then, like you said, you can only say, well, we tried. You know, we didn't have perfect right. information, but we tried to do something. Yeah. Um, completely ignoring the idea that if you had just waited, maybe you would have had perfect information or much better information that could have informed your your actions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think the way you articulate is much better than what I did uh, of, of that idea, like cost benefit. Um, and I think you know too. You know, you mentioned incentives. I mean, it, if there's any core model that I found the most helpful, it's probably that, that incentives matter. Um, to always ask, mm-hmm. you know, what what is the incentive behind this? Um, and, and there can be all, like we've mentioned on the last podcast, right? There's all, all manner of incentives mm-hmm. um, that would cause people to behave in a certain way. Um, so... You know, the action may not, somebody may take action and then they may justify it as, well, we did this to limit harm, but you have to ask yourself, is it, is that just what they're telling us to justify their action? Mm-hmm. Did they take that action because they might benefit some way themselves and how much harm they limit or increase, right, was, was never a factor in the, the in the decision. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who, th- who think, and I think there's some merit to this, that, um, the fear around COVID has been ramped up in order to drive up demand for a vaccine. Um, so right. undoubtedly, you know, there are politicians who get money from the pharmaceutical industry who undoubtedly will be making money off of this. Mm-hmm. Right. So in their, their willingness to jump in and take action, right? They say they're doing it to save people's lives, but are they really doing it to kind of help the pharmaceutical industry out? Sure. Help the pharmaceutical industry get a windfall. And, um, you know, and I think, there, like I said, I think there's some merit to that argument, but, you know, the point is, is like there's an incentive there that is is sort of an unseen incentive, Right. So that, you know, so, yeah, so incentives definitely matter um, when we're looking at these things and Mm -hmm. you have to, you know, going back to good faith, it's like, you know, how much do you trust that the person, the reasons that they're giving for what doing what they're doing or thinking what they're thinking are the actual reasons. Right. Yeah. I mean, the transparency around incentives is, is just so difficult to determine and it, it, it does create that uh, confusion and it, and it can lead back. I mean, even how we started this conversation, right? What we're talking about the conversation, the podcast or uh, with Sam Harris, and he's talking about dialogue with, with other people uh, that he's been associated with the past and not sure he wants to be associated with them now. And you, you, 
you kind of think about what are the incentives there that are driving his dialogue? What is the incentive for the other people on the other side that are um, looking for different information, sharing different information? Uh, there's one of the people that um, I actually was introduced to was Majid Nawaz, who is someone that Sam Harris has done a lot of work with. I think they co-authored a book about um, extremism and how to, to counteract it. And Majid is talking nonstop about where, you know, going down the rabbit hole of the election claims about election fraud and saying, let the legal process handle it. Now, Majid is, he's not a citizen of the United States. He's, he's, he's a, a UK citizen, a English citizen. So he, he, in some ways he doesn't have skin in the game, but I, I do I think that a lot of people outside of the United States look to, um, you know, they're downwind from uh, what happens to us. And so they, they, they can see us in the best of days as a beacon of hope and as a worst of days as a, as a harbinger for, for terrible outcomes that are coming down the pipe. Um, so that's, that's why you'll have commentary from uh, literally all over the world about um, our, our politics. But he's, he's tweeting about it nonstop. Where's the evidence? Let's see the evidence. Don't, he doesn't want to let it go. He wants to ask questions about the Dominion servers. And so, um, what are the incentives behind these, this conversation that these people are having? And can you uh, be asking those kinds of questions? Maybe that's where it comes back to, you know, looking at Sam. Sam wants to be taken uh, seriously within the intellectual circles, which I, which I can respect. I, I guess you have to always ask, are you asking questions outside the Overton window? Uh, are, you, are you venturing into the area that people popularly describe as Alex Jones territory um, or, right. or are you asking legitimate questions uh, and, and being a rebel? And uh, I think Brett Weinstein said it once where the information that was shared at one point was considered, um, you were considered a heretic if you were sharing it. Now it's just, it's what we accept as common knowledge. Like the, the sun is the center of the universe is a, is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so where, where is that boundary line? And I, I'm not sure we know. And I, and I think that that almost brings us full circle back to the beginning of this podcast of if we shut down dialogue with people that we disagree with because they're peddling quote unquote conspiracy theories and they are, um, they're doing it in a way that's damaging. And, 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 and I, I'm going to ask you a question after this, so I'll, I'll just finish this. If, if, we, if we shut down that dialogue and say we don't want to associate with them, are we actually doing, uh, are we doing the world a service or, or not is, is what's in the back of my head. And I, and I don't think there's a clear answer on that. I, my, my default is no. I'd rather engage with people even if I disagree with their ideas. Um, and I, I feel like I'm associated with all kinds of people that could have crazy ideas. Um, but I, I, I want to give I want to give Sam a, a a shout out in terms of getting me thinking about a different concern, a different risk uh, that I hadn't yet, and and I share this with my friend. So and this is you know this is getting directly into the politics, and if is it a model or is it just more of a uh, just a question? So I I was of the opinion, listen, if there's credible results of, of voter fraud, then bring them to the courts, take them out, and let's let's sort of see where they go. And if there's insufficient evidence. It doesn't matter if there was mass fraud. If there's insufficient evidence, it doesn't matter because we have to have a fact-based, evidence-based system um, to to be able to to govern at some level. My concern there becomes if a large portion of the voter base is 
believes, well, just because you couldn't get to the evidence doesn't mean it didn't happen. And then the president continues to run the narrative that, well, they destroyed all the evidence, we can't get the evidence, uh, therefore this election is is not um, real, or the election results aren't real. Do you, does it give more weight to what, what Harris is saying, which is basically you've got a madman who's willing to torch everything and look at his followers that are that are going to just believe him even without evidence. Or, or is he is he promoting a world in which evidence doesn't matter? Um, and is that a real risk that we have civil conf- not just civil conflicts like armed conflict, violence that erupts because he's not willing to say, "Listen, we didn't have evidence in the court of law. I'm going to have to call it a day." Uh, and and I I guess that's my question to you, Scott. What do you, how do you think? Do you think that's um, a tangible like a real good argument um, against? Uh, people that are supporting Trump, and um, and if not, why not? Um, no, I agree with you. I mean, I think my default is no. You know, we we don't want to shut down discourse. Um, I I can certainly see the argument for why it's good. You know, social harmony um, and that sort of thing. But then, um, when you do that, though, you 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 can effectively stop innovation, right? You can stop yeah. the growth of your society and new ideas. Um, you know, like you mentioned the idea that the sun or the earth was the center of the universe, right? These are ideas that without having um, those people thinking outside of the Overton window may have never come to pass. Um, so, you know, you kind of have to tolerate the bad along with the good. Um you know, one thing, when I was listening to the Sam Harris video, you kind of mentioned arguing like, you know, it, it, if the election fraud occurred, show us the evidence. Well, I, I remember thinking listening to the Sam Harris video or watching the Sam Harris video is he was coming to a lot of conclusions without himself providing evidence, mm. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, you know, Trump is this deranged madman who wants to tear down society. It's like, well, I mean, is he egotistical? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've seen plenty from him that makes me think he's egotistical, even back before <laughs> he was president. You know, uh, but is he is he trying to tear down society, or is he just trying to, you know, prove that he won the election? I mean, does he really believe that? Right? And, yeah. You know, we don't know. But you know, same, he was taking it. Sam Harris was taking it to an extreme, right? That this guy is a con man and a shyster and just all of these terrible things. When you know, maybe maybe he's just an egotistical child who doesn't want to accept that he lost, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. You know, so kind of when we talk about evidence, right? You know, it it, it really goes layers deep, right? Well, yeah. you're you're coming to a, a, a conclusion. And then telling the other side, you need to provide evidence to me to make me come over that, overcome that conclusion. When the other side could be looking back at you going, well, where's your evidence for your conclusion? Um, So that, that was just something that popped into my head while we were talking. Um, But, but back to your question again, I think, you know, I don't think it does good to shut down discourse. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if, um, if a place like, um, you know, like a place like Twitter where they, um, you know, a few weeks ago they were shutting down the New York Post article or links to the New York Post article about the Hunter Biden laptop, right? I mean, that that's information that in a functioning democracy people should have. 
and people should be able to review that information, talk about it, and then come to their own conclusions on whether they believe it's true or not. Um, you know, it, it, transparency and access to facts and information is necessary for a democracy mm -hmm. to function properly. Yeah. And when, when people are shutting down access to that information because it could be harmful, right? What do you, what you're, you're basically getting rid of the ideals of democracy because people aren't making informed decisions on who, who to vote for, on what, um, what regulations to vote for and that, that sort of thing, right? And these are all decisions that affect our lives. So we should have access to that information and who is, you know, some fact checker on Twitter or Facebook to tell me that this information is dangerous to me. Yeah. Right. You know, um, I, I'll, I'll go up against any of them, right? I'm not <laughs> the smartest guy in the world, but I think I could hold my own against these folks. Sure. Um, so, you know, t to me, like discourse is just the most important thing. Right? Yeah. Um, so any attempt to shut that down, I think we're just, we're kind of neutering ourselves or our society, um, to not growing to be what we could potentially be. And I don't see any point in that. Yeah. I, and I, I agree. Um, what do you think about the risk of people? Um, I, I guess I shared sort of this risk of Trump saying it was uh, we, we can't we don't have the evidence to show that, it, that to prove that it was a um, that, that all the ballots went a certain way and that, you know, they whoever they are, if it's, you know, if he's claiming it's the DNC or some other group CIA, I don't know. Um, they, they changed all the ballots, but uh, we know that it was an unjust election. And people agree with that. So they're, they're, they're agreeing, even though we, we don't have the actual evidence in front of us, we know that we're, um, we've, we were, it was stolen, and therefore it's illegitimate, and uh, therefore we're allowed to, to take action. And, and you know, uh, the idea of, I don't know what that action looks like, but it's, it doesn't sound good to me. So do you think that's a real risk? Do you think that's a typical overblown media type of view? Um, you know, I think it's a typical overblown media okay. point of view. I mean, I think there's like, again, going back to incentives, like what organization or organizations profit the most off of divisiveness and panic, right? It's, it's the news. It's the, yeah. the corporate media um, with politicians coming in a very close second, I suppose. Um but, you know, like I mentioned, right, you got to take the bad with the good, right? There's no one out there who is qualified to sit there and decide what information is is harmful and what information is not, right? We kind of have to let the market decide. Yeah. And if, you know, Trump continues with this course, right, over time, you know, people who are very into it now and very supportive of them may get, just get tired of it. And they may be like, you know what, it's time to just move on. We need to get rid of this guy. Right. So the market will eventually may eventually speak and just say, mm -hmm. Trump, go away, you know, go off, yeah. go do the apprentice again or something. Um, <laughs> apprentice um, 2.0. We want it to come back right. even stronger. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> With his uh, conference room that he turned into a mock up of the Oval Office. That's um, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let, so, me, let, let me let me put an idea out there because I want to I want to hear your thoughts on on this because I, I may be stretching it. I really may. But. What I see on the left 
is exactly what I just described, but coming from a different direction. And it's what I commonly refer to as critical studies, where they begin to create imaginary dragons, ideas, thoughts um, that describe the, you know, the world. Uh, So, I mean, they, they, they look at outcomes for, for women as an example. And they say, well, you know, here, here's the, here's the pay gap and here's, um, here's these other types of statistics that we can perhaps all agree on, but then they draw conclusions that I, would disagree on maybe why the, the, the differences in pay, as an example, um, occur. So they may say something like a systematic uh, sexual, um, or not, not sexuality, but um, discrimination against women, right? And what I see there is that there's a lot of people that without evidence, um, and, and maybe it's fabricated evidence, honestly. Like, if you look at a lot of critical studies, there's a lot of papers that are out there. They have published over decades now papers that are built off of sandcastles. There, there is no underlying data. There is no underlying um, confirmation. There is no, there's no replication. There's no science behind this process. There's assertions that are never really tested. And if you can get people out there, uh, and maybe it's still fringe, I would say... I would say it sounded very fringe to me until this summer when we had protests and people justifying the protest when um, over criminal justice and, and the George Floyd death, uh, when people started to all say, yes, of course, we have an issue of systematic uh, racism in this country. And, and I saw this across the board. And, and it, it, was, it was interesting to me. It was also very sad to me because... I felt like, well, if you look at the information, the data that we can gather from places like Washington Post, FBI uh, statistics, there is a different story that, that, that comes out. So the evidence suggests that what BLM is claiming in terms of racial profiling is, is at a minimum, contestable. You, you can have a debate about it. Now, I'm not saying that, um, I, I'm not at all saying that there aren't racist cops and that there may be places in which racism plays an overwhelming factor in the in the killing of young black men, uh, primarily black men, uh, as the data suggests. But there's other areas where you could at least debate it. If there's so, if you see uh, the country kind of being wrapped up in uh, this hysteria, a large portion, of what it felt like a large portion of the people, at least agreeing or acquiescing to this idea, it to me it seems like the phenomenon where people are able to buy in to a narrative. And then I take that over here, where if Trump is saying, guys, we can't, we can't get the evidence, but you know what? We know it was stolen, because there's no way people would have gone for the socialist policies. And is he able to get a similar level of hysteria running, where 50 million out of the 72 million that voted for him are all of a sudden say, yeah, we agree. We agree that, um, you know, that, that it was stolen. So if, if, if I... So I, I guess to try and make this succinct, I'm sorry, I think I, I made that pretty long and drawn out. If, if you agree with me that there's at least a debatable point about what happens with BLM and the data that they suggest that cops are killing, then we have systematic racism the way they suggest it, and we have large portions of our population that agree to that. Is it possible that without the evidence here for voting fraud, uh, because it hasn't been produced, I'm not saying, again, it it may have happened, but if you don't have the evidence, what are you supposed to, I, I feel like then you have to at some point say, listen, we don't have the evidence. We have to agree that it didn't happen. 
um, or at least say that you can't keep on going down that path. That's that's kind of my default. But do you do you see a risk there or or, or not? Yeah. So, are you asking if I see a risk in sort of um, if we accept it in one area? Then is it going to spread into other areas? Is it is it is it a, a part of our psychology and, and the way in which we're communicating? We talked about engagement today on social media and how that that, ins- that we have the wrong incentives, and so people just start agreeing and agreeing and agreeing without actually con- taking it. And I'm saying we have a left example with BLM, which does not have the data to suggest that their narrative is accurate, but people still agree to it. And then over here, are we going to see uh, see a similar problem? Like. When, what I saw over the summertime was people that I've known my entire life start to say, well, I didn't realize I was part of a racist society. Um, I didn't realize that um, I'm a racist. And and you go, but you're not a racist. I, I, I don't know how you would reach that conclusion other than you, you re, you're hearing what um, a small set of activists are, are asserting and believing that it's factual without any evidence. And... And the question is, could it happen with a different phenomenon? In this case, the agreement that even without evidence for voter fraud, um, at the levels in which that would change the election, people say, nope, the election was definitely stolen. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's definitely possible. Um, you know, and again, like I'm going to come back to this idea of like, you know, we have to accept the bad with the good, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, yes, what Trump is doing is a horrendous waste of resources, a waste yeah. of time. Um you know, but and and there's hustlers involved in this. I think you know uh, when it comes to race. I think Thomas Sowell called them race hustlers or something. Yeah. Right? Where yeah. you know people again incentives, right? Incentives matter, right? People have a an incentive to keep these narratives going, and they have an incentive to to bias how they present the facts if if they even present facts at all to kind of keep mm-hmm. this going. And uh, mm-hmm. I even heard someone throw a theory out there that, you know, secretly CNN wants Trump to win <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, Trump saved CNN basically. Absolutely. Like, you know, and, you know, and if Trump gets, gets pushed out of office and, and he goes away, right. What, what, what's CNN going to do, right. Their entire business model's gone. Oh, right? yeah. So yeah. That's a you know, shame. So I think even if Trump concedes and, you know, admits that he lost and Biden gets, you know, put into the oval office, right. Yeah. I think CNN's still going to be running these stories about how Trump is plotting a takeover of the country and he's going to come back in 2024 and all this. Yeah. Um, as a cyborg. As, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, he's secretly, you know, mind controlling Joe Biden or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure they'll come gosh. up with some. Yeah. <laughs> Joe Biden's the Trump Manchurian candidate. Uh, you know, That's I'm sure right. they'll come up with some interesting stories. Um, so, you know, when, when we kind of talked about this, like, do we, should we accept these things? You know, how much should we fight back right i think we have to keep in mind what the stakes are you know Mm. you know again right everything seems urgent today you know is trump fighting this um you know long term is it gonna really do any harm you know would it really do any harm to have some people look a little more closely at the the system that we have for elections would it do any harm to look more closely at the the software that these um these cities and counties are using, you know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Um, well, I, you know, I certainly don't think that this is going to like destroy the country or anything like that. I think yeah. there's going to be a lot of argument and people are eventually going to kind of forget about it. Right. It's going to get written into the history books um, yeah. and we're going to move on, you know? So, okay. um, yeah. Yeah. What did you want to say? I, I, 
So, so this is the part that people start calling you a conspiracy theorist, and, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna take that mantle. I'm gonna take the hat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tinfoil. It's going on. So, we are a country that talks about democracy. It's part of the language that both even both parties are gonna use. You're gonna hear about mm-hmm. spreading democracy and how important it is. And if you go to Biden's website uh, for I, I, let's just call it his his first hundred days, one of the bullets that he has on there is increased. Uh, investment in securing our elections, including money for for cyber. And what comes to mind is this is a solvable problem. This is a solvable problem, very simply. And 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 I've heard I've heard people push back at me, but I'm I'm going to share what my solution is. Uh, first of all, any any software for voting should be 100% audible um, with timestamps. Right, that, that tell you exactly what the code is, you can see exactly how it operates, and you can see the output of that code. And you can do hash signatures for, for people's votes that include a timestamp that cannot be altered without actually altering the data, right? You can also see exactly how votes were assigned to a specific candidate. All this is possible. So you, 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 create, up, uh, you create a prize that's funded, let's just say by the federal government, for $10 million, to create free open source software that meets the standards I just laid out. And then mm-hmm. you can have money that's given to states and local elections to use it. And, and all you have to do is set the standard. Listen, I don't care what, uh, what software you use, be it Dominion, be it um, this free open source software, but we, we're going to be able to audit every single vote that comes in uh, with, with the timestamps, and you create those standards. And if you know anything about hash signatures, if you know anything about free open source software development, and if you know any, if you study things that like the Gates Foundation has done, where they have created ten million dollar grants for to try and care, create sanitation for Africa, you know that these prizes are given out all of the time. In fact, I read and I, I need to get more data on it that Microsoft created free open source software that they were distributing in India for free and open elections. Now. Knowing that it's a solvable problem, knowing that it takes software developers to invest in it, and that you can set up a program, a prize, that would actually give, I mean, $10 million to this federal government right now is not even a rounding error. You could make it $100 million, right? It's, It's nothing. It is absolutely no money. The fact that no one wants to do it tells me something. This is the, this is the conspiracy theory. It's a solvable problem, and it's it's solvable with resources that we have. It's not like energy. It's not like you know. It it's political problem, which then creates this idea of a conspiracy theory, and that's without having to look at the results of this last election, right? Right. So, yeah. No. <laughs> and this is exactly where people like me. Uh, oh well, that's a conspiracy thinking. It's like, well, but again, is 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 how is Biden? In, 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 in this work, and I, I agree with him, we should absolutely be putting resources into um, making our software more, you know, easier to follow. There's, there's models out there that are infinitely better. I mean, the fact that we, I mean, all this stuff should be uh, traceable and audible the, the day of. It, 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 in today's, you know, 2020, we can watch videos of cats 24-7, 365, but this is something we can't solve? No, garbage. So yeah. that, that, that's where it, it, it makes it difficult. And this is where people like myself sit there and like, well, there's no evidence for fraud, but I also know that you guys are all liars. 
because you won't solve something. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> there's, there's no incentive to fix something when the people in control are benefiting from it. Um, yes. Yeah. And, you know, and the, the thought has crossed my mind that one reason why the Democrats and some Republicans are telling Trump to just kind of bow out is they don't want any closer scrutiny on the election system because they're both cheating and they don't want anyone to figure out how they are. Now, I don't have any evidence of that. Right. That's just a thought that popped into my head. Right. Um, You know, when you consider Trump kind of this populist outsider who doesn't mind throwing a monkey wrench into the system, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's possible, right. That they could be thinking that, Um, you know, and I think another good way to look at this, not to, not to go too deep into just the elections and things, because I know we we're going to do that on a different podcast. But, um, you know, another way to shift your mindset is don't think of this as Republicans versus Democrats. Think of this as Republicans and Democrats having a shared interest. And, and it's them against the the citizens, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, so, it, you know, they they may have a every incentive in the world to continue with the current system. So anyone who pops up with a, a prize to develop free and open source software, right. They, if it's a private prize, like, like the kind of like the X prize or something like that. Um, you know, I could see, I could see governments throwing regulations up to stop the adoption of this software. Exactly. Or to to undermine confidence in it. Um, Yep. You know, so that's, that's kind of another way to think about it. Right. No, you, you, I, I 100% agree, which brings you back to, and, and I think this informs exactly why I have distrust of both of our political parties in this country and governments in general. It's not it's not because they're evil people. The incentives are not aligned in the proper way and um, to, to get the best outcomes as I see them. And that's just a citizen's personal opinion. But it, it, it every single time... I, I think what I'll tell anybody who's listening to this, every single time someone tells you it's it's decision between X and Y, ask yourself what alternatives could have happened before that or after that, right? Yep. What, yep. what, what and, and, and I've, I've played this mental game, um, you know, simulation with what, what could Bush have done after 9-11 that would have led to a different outcome than the wars that we have? Uh, what could Obama done after the 2008-2009 financial crisis? Um, what, what can Biden do today with the political capital that he has, um, play out those scenarios and ask yourself what that could have been. And then ask yourself why they didn't happen. And if it doesn't start to pull apart some of the, the model, uh, and, and, and highlight areas, then, then you probably have some research to do because what you're going to find is that they're not exploring different ideas for very specific incentives. You may not know yeah. what they are. Um, but you're gonna you're gonna start questioning them, and as you do that, you're st- you're gonna start seeing, uh, I think, a, a sharper kind of view of, of the way this looks. So, Scott, we're 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 way over an hour. I know we have kind of an hour mark here, um, and we've 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 covered a lot of ground. Um, you know, so, so this this may be a good point to stop, but I I, I don't. I want to ask you: Is there anything else you think on this topic of sort of civil productive discourse that you think we didn't cover that we we should talk about? Um. No, I think we pretty much covered everything. Um, the only thing I have here in my notes that we didn't really get into is you alluded to it is the idea of gaps. Um, and are we asking the right questions? But I think, mm. you know, I think that's actually a topic that we could probably do a, a whole podcast on. 
Um, yeah. Um, because it definitely does feed into this um, pretty heavily, I think. Um, you know, but just just real quick to kind of not leave people hanging, right? You know, the idea of gaps, like you mentioned, is if if we don't have information to fill in a certain gap, we just make an assumption. Um, you know, like one that I heard about recently is the God gap, right? So if, if science can't explain something, then that's proof that God exists, right? So we're filling in that gap uh, mm-hmm. with this one assumption. Um, and, and we see that happening a lot, not, not necessarily God, but in other areas like race. Sure. You know, if we don't understand why someone acted the way they did, then we just kind of fill that in with racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and this gets us to, are you asking the right questions, right? You have to, right. you have to know what questions to ask to kind of probe into those gaps so that you're not making those assumptions. Um, yep. which I think this is a really interesting topic. So I think I'd like to explore that on a future podcast if we could. I, I agree. I think, uh, you know, the purpose of, of these conversations is to sharpen our, our tool set to expand it and sharpen the tools. So we're asking better questions. We're, we're becoming as informed as we can and we're making the best decisions possible. So I, I think yeah. that'd be a great topic. So yeah, exactly. Well, well, thank you, Scott, for taking the time today and to all of our audience members out there, let us know in the comments what you think about civil discourse and ways, maybe the way in which you see that it's evolved today and what, what is and isn't working and then ways in which we can improve it going forward. Uh, to help all of our citizens, uh, both in this country and even globally, to to get better outcomes in our world. So until next time, uh, we'll see you then. All right, see ya.